Hey, you're listening to Ask a Freelancer, episode nine. Ask a Freelancer is brought to you by Cushion, a simple forecasting app for freelancers. Cushion gives you a bird's eye view of your schedule and income so you can plan months ahead and reach your financial goals for the year. Learn more about Cushion at cushionapp.com. Okay, I'm your host, Andy J. Miller, Andy J. Pizza, as some have called me. Let's get into the questions for today's show. Now remember, these are questions that you sent to at Cushion App on Twitter, and somehow we wrangled real recordings of you asking these questions. So let's go to the first one. scale your pricing in your workload. Okay, so this question is about essentially how do you master the crazy wild ebbs and flows, the crazy waves of freelance? Because it, it really is feast or famine often. You have seasons where you go a month and there's no new clients. Then you go a month where you have 15 new clients all at once and you have to turn down people. And it just becomes just very chaotic very easily. And as someone who has three children and a mortgage, I've had to learn how to master the ebbs and flow of freelance, including pricing, including workload, uh, including all sorts of things. Now, Let's use a egg farmer analogy. You know, back when I lived in Indiana, I had this deal with a local couple and they would deliver us eggs every week uh, if we just signed up to this ongoing agreement. So let's say that you are an egg farmer and I think the pitfall that happens with most freelancers is that they price based on external expectations or imaginary subjective external expectations instead of the internal viability of their business. Here's what I mean. So most of the time you see freelancers and they price their eggs not based on what they need to make to be a viable business, but based on what they think an egg is worth, right? And I think you're going to get into some trouble here. So if you price an egg based on what you think people will pay for it, what you think an egg is worth, you're not going to know how much you need to make in order to keep the doors open, in order to keep the farm. You're going to base it on what they're selling eggs at the supermarket for. But the problem with that is your egg is special. If someone's coming to you, they should be coming to you because you sell farm fresh, local, organic eggs. And that particular situation requires a particular price point. Instead of working out what you price your logo or your website or your illustration, um, instead of pricing it on based on what you think a logo should cost, you need to reverse engineer it by the internal viability of your business. And you need to account for everything that needs to be accounted for. You need to account for the fact that you're going to have busy seasons and you have slow seasons. 
So when you look over the past um, of your business, you're going to see that some months, you know, say, let's say the summer months are slower than the winter months. Just like an egg farmer, you're going to have to account for the fact that in the summer, there's a farmer's market and you get tons of unexpected sales. And in the winter, you have to sell them directly from your farm. And you need to price them so that your business can withstand the slow winter and the heavy and, and that the heavy summer pays for the slow winter. And there's no shame in that. There's no shame in the fact that sometimes freelancing is super busy and sometimes it's not. You just need to be pricing accordingly. And you need to make sure the margins are there to accommodate for that, to accommodate for your insurance, to accommodate for your rent wherever you're working, you're, you need to price based on the idea that you can remain viable as a business so that you can sell your particular value. Now, the other thing I think you need to do to account for the ebbs and flows of freelance is you need to do whatever you can to create some semblance of stability the ebbs and flows, the crashing waves that come and go, uh, they can be pretty much impossible to build a freelance business on alone. And so one of the ways that I've attacked this, other than pricing on viability as a business, the second thing that I did was I did anything to create this semblance of stability, whether that was teaching a class that you know is going to uh, require that's going to have regular income uh, or passive income products, or maybe it's, um, maybe it's having a, a company on retainer, or maybe it's trying to strike up reoccurring clients. Now, all of these things uh, are going to help you create a more stable income that you can count on. Here's the trick, I think, and this is uh, something that I think you need to accommodate for, is that this pricing system can be less about the viability of your business and more about the value of stability. And so the, for me, the person who had a deal with this couple who would deliver us eggs every Wednesday, we got cheaper eggs than what you would get at the farmer's market. And the reason is, is because they, gave, they have incentive to have that stability. So we're not just trading our money. We're also trading the assurance that we're going to keep paying them week after week. And so one thing I would encourage you on is this idea that it's okay to trade some stability for uh, money. Meaning it's okay if, if a client can come to you and, and say, hey, we can give you this work every single month. I think it's totally okay to trade them uh, that deal, that assurance for a little bit of a discount on your pricing because that assurance is make or break in your freelance business. Personal brand or professional brand? So this question is about whether you should have a personal brand uh, or a professional brand. Should you just go with your name or should you have some kind of moniker? And I think that there's no 
one size fits all here. I think it's just like having a logo. There are lots of different uh, logos for different types of businesses. You know, different colors match with different types of psychology of brands. And there's different things that you want to do for different markets and different niches. I will give you just some criteria that I think can be helpful. And it comes from the design legend, Paul Rand. He has this, uh, this way of evaluating what makes a good logo. And it seems really simple, but it's actually quite brilliant. And a good logo, in the words of Paul Rand, is both appropriate and memorable. And the way I look at this is... It acknowledges the market and the niche. So here's what I mean. What I mean is it needs your, whether you're going to go with Andy J. Miller or you're going to be Andy J. Pizza or you're going to be, you know, when I first started, gosh, I don't even want to talk about it because it's kind of embarrassing, but it presents a good point. When I first started, um, <laughs> oh no, uh, when I first started, my business was called Coma, K O M A. Hey, instead of a C on coma, like cool cigarettes. Oh my goodness. Oh no, Andy of 2008. College Andy, you had so much to learn. But I, you know, so I've gone as Andy J. Miller. I'm kind of currently going as Andy J. Pizza. And there was once a time where I went as coma design. Oh dear. Um, anyway, you can go look all that stuff up uh, online if you're interested. But essentially... The two things you need to balance are, is this appropriate for your market? And then also, will it stand out? So will it fit in in the right ways? Will it obey the rules where it needs to, 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 give, your, to give your brand context, but not be so fitting in that it doesn't get anyone's attention? And this is the balance that I think you're gonna try to strike. And here's what I mean. Like, when you come up with a brand, for a new restaurant. You want it to fit in so that people know that it's a restaurant. You want it to have the contextual clues that say, hey, we're a restaurant. Because, you know, recently I saw this restaurant open up and it looked exactly like a bank. It used uh, these shades of greens and yellows and this typeface. Everything about it said, we are a bank, when in fact it was a restaurant. And so in some ways, you need to make sure that your brand name is appropriate within the context of your market, meaning whether you're a web designer or whether you're an illustrator or whether you're a, you know, a, a programmer, it needs to fit in in the right ways so that people can have the context to understand what you are. And so in that way, you need to think about... Um, you need to think about whether it's giving the right clues and it's appropriate for the market that you're in. Now, on the flip side, you need to think about carving out a niche that's unique and not you know, getting washed out in the crowd. You need to make sure that you don't create a brand that's exactly like all the other brands. You need to make sure that your name doesn't blend in with every other thing. That was one of the problems and why I ended up going with a moniker initially was because Andy Miller was the most plain name in the world. And if you searched it on Google, you're going to get a billion results. And it was just a disaster in that way. So initially, I 
just threw my middle initial J in there as a way of kind of solving this problem. But even that was a problem because all of my social network uh, usernames were different. You know, Andy hyphen J hyphen Miller, uh, Andy J M L L R, right? And and that posed a problem for just legibility, just in terms of people being able to follow you from platform to platform and gain that trust that you're trying to build as a brand and gain that uh, uh, visibility. And so for me, it was really helpful to move to something more novel uh, that also was completely appropriate for my niche as an illustrator. Uh, I, and I moved to Andy. J Pizza. And so now on every platform, Instagram, Twitter, Dribble, whatever, I'm Andy J Pizza. Now I thought about both standing out and fitting in. I thought about the fact that it fits in because my work is illustration. It's super playful. It, it, um, it, it's very appropriate for the silliness of my work, but at the same time, it's something that stands out because there's, it's available on every platform. I don't know anybody that goes by the last name Pizza, and I also could, could uh, create a domain name that was andyj.pizza. Uh, and so I think that when you start coming up with this name, you need to know the rules before you can break them effectively. And so if, if everybody in your market goes by their name, you need to, if you need to decide whether it's going to be a, a helpful thing or a hurtful thing to break that rule. And often if you do break it, you need to break it in a meaningful, intentional sort of way. The last thing I want to just add to this is you need to think about scale and longevity. So in terms of scale, if you always plan to be a freelancer, a lone gunman, a solopreneur, if you will, then going with something that denotes a larger body of people like a random moniker that has the word studio at the end is kind of misleading. Uh, and, and it kind of is going to confuse your customers. Whereas if you plan on scaling, starting with your name as the business can actually inhibit the growth because 10 years down the line, if you want to have, you know, 15 employees, but your, your company's called Andy J. Miller and they email and they get Susan in accounting, that can pose some problems because a lot of times if they're working with a brand that's a name, they're expecting to work with that person and that becomes part of the value proposition. And that can be kind of difficult to navigate. So one of the other things you need to think about is scale. And then lastly, unlike Andy of 2008, College Andy, who named his, his illustration business, <laughs> Coma with a K. Um, unlike that dude, you need to think about longevity. You need to think about you in 15 years, 20 years. Hopefully, you're setting up something that's going to, to last, that's going to be successful. And I always run these things by this test. And the test is the tattoo test. I always say, if you're going to get a tattoo, then... It should be something that you're super excited about today and you at six years old would be super thrilled about it. If, if it, you at six years old would be like, man, that's a sweet tattoo, then you're probably going to like it when you're 90 because the things that you have in common with your six-year-old self are unlikely to change at this point. 
depending on your age. If you're an eight-year-old listening to this podcast, kudos to you. You're getting your freelance career started, right? But, uh, but I'm assuming that that will be a good test of longevity. So when you go to name your company, I would encourage you to think about yourself 10 years ago and say, does that name appeal to me? Am I likely to continue to feel good about it in the long term? even as my tastes change, even as times change, and even as the, the scale of my company changes. The next question will be answered by our, our very super special guest, Danielle Evans. She is a three-dimensional lettering artist, and you can find her work at marmaladeblue.com. Here she is. So, how do you handle clients who change their minds nonstop and ask everyone under the sun what they think of your illustrations? This is a great question that I think comes down to how valuable not only do you deem your ideas as a freelancer, but how valuable they are to the clients that are hiring you. Now, oftentimes when freelancers are hired, they don't understand company culture or former practices or past campaigns. And so they're brought in as a fresh eye and a new spirit in which to interpret old ideas. And because of that, clients can be um, nervous. They can be um, scared. They can be mistrustful, not because they don't think you're talented or do what you do extremely well, but because you're different. And so in part, you have to um, manage that sense of difference and nervousness. You're essentially an ambassador to a new way of thinking. And so one of the best ways to be an ambassador is to be diplomatic and to be um, forthright and communicative. So for me, when I'm setting up a job, usually I let people know, hey, this is the scope of the job. These are how many sketches I'll give you as needed. This is a potential test I'm willing to run on materials as needed. And then this is how my process will go once we start to photograph my lettering. Now, oftentimes to offset the scope, I will also include a, an out of scope clause. So I'll talk about if we exceed three sketches, if we exceed two tests, if we do multiple orientations of this image where I have to stack the layout differently. Usually those items will be accounted for by me and I'll even throw in another little clause of, you know, and whatever else along this line, if this changes, we need to go back and adjust this in writing. So that is usually me protecting myself against someone who can't make up their mind or um, maybe is designing by committee. So a lot of times with these larger clients that I'm working with, there will be multiple people on the phone. They'll have to run it through three different groups, like marketing and accounting and whatnot. And so it feels like because you have all of these voices behind the, um, the client that they have more leverage than you. But in actuality, since they are reaching out to you for help, you also have power and leverage. And one of the ways I find to protect your ideas is to leverage the ability to increase the budget. So when people are changing their minds nonstop, obviously, um, or often, should I say, this is indicative of lacking direction. So what you can do is say, hey, you know, I noticed we've gone through the available amount of sketches. I think at this point we should consider increasing the budget to allow for more ideas or playing this out in a different manner, in which case you can you can do that. Um, and I, when I present 
those ideas to clients. When I say, hey, you know, we're going to have to throw some more money behind this, I typically do a we inclusive statement. I won't say you need to pay me more. I won't say I need more money from you. I try to keep it very, very much um, passive or inclusive in the way that I communicate because I recognize this is a team and a partnership and therefore there's no one really at fault for lacking lacking vision or lacking direction. Um, it's my job to help provide that to them, but also I'm not running the show. So I find that once you throw out the money card or the increase in budget card, a lot of the stupid questions or additional people's getting involved will subside. And especially if you make it into the sketch phase versus the production phase, oftentimes if the job then is nixed because people cannot make up their minds or agree on anything, you get to walk away with a portion of, of your money and your goal, which is huge. Um, so making sure that you have all of that outlined for yourself is, is a big deal. Um, and I know that a lot of people, again, see asking for an increase in budget as being weak or it makes them feel like they're relinquishing their power or in a place of discomfort when in actuality by encouraging people to raise their budgets because we're not getting to the right the right place together shows a point of like confidence and being like look I see you guys need more help than most people um usually while I'm while I'm asking for this I will also agree to kind of solve their problem I'll go do we need to um explore some different numerical layouts? Do we need to um, tweak the, the lettering to become more indicative of a time or, or a setting? Like, do we need to look at different colors um, of produce or, or whatever it is we're using? And, you know, I'm happy to tweak the sketches we've done a little bit more. Um, I could probably work on these, maybe give you two more options, but past that, then we're going to have to start increasing or, or charging for more sketches. That's I, I try to find a way to like verbally compromise with them or tell them what I'm willing to do for them outside of increasing a budget. And I find that that sort of negotiable behavior is acceptable to people who make decisions and write the checks and are maybe given the final word because then it tells them how much they can actually ask from you. So the more you're willing to communicate, the better your um, agreement and essentially ambassadorship will become. Thanks to our very super, extremely special, super special guest, Danielle Evans. Thanks for being on the show, friend. Go check out her three-dimensional lettering work. It is fantastic. It's typography made out of food. It's so delicious and great. Go check it out at marmaladeblue.com. That concludes another episode of Ask a Freelancer. Don't forget to check out Cushion at cushionapp.com. I'm your host, Andy J. Pilsner Beer. You can find my illustration portfolio and my other podcast, Creative Pep Talk, at www.andyj.pizza. Thanks to Nate Utesh and his band Metavari for the tunes. You can listen to more at soundcloud.com slash Metavari. Send us your freelance questions on Twitter at CushionApp, and it may just be answered in our next episode. Woo! Thanks, guys. <laughs>